Thank you, Matt. So in our passage this morning, um, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and Martha welcomed him. Um, She opened up her house to him. And as we all know, when people come over, there are a lot of preparations to be made. Um, The NIV version says the the word preparations, the NRSV says the tasks. And rooms need to be cleaned, food needs to be cooked, bathrooms need to be scrubbed, clothes need to be shoved into the closet before people see how messy we really are. Um, And especially if the guy coming over is Jesus, right? And yet as we read, that was not the most important thing. The preparations, those tasks were not the most important thing. What was important was focusing on Jesus. It was to sit and listen to him, to his words. One reason I love this story is it's situated right next to the Good Samaritan. And in the Good Samaritan, you know, the lawyer's asking, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we hear that the, the answer is to love God and to love your neighbor. And the Good Samaritan, the story right before it, tells us what does it mean to love our neighbor. The priest and the Levite who walked past the the guy on the road who was beaten up, they were following the rules. They were following the rules that, hey, religious people should not be unclean, so we're going to walk around a dead body that might be dead so we don't touch him, so we don't stay, or so that we remain clean. And it was the ethnic and religious outsider of the good, in the story of the Good Samaritan that actually showed us what it meant to love our neighbor. And I love it. It ends with the phrase, go and do. Go and do. And then we have the story of Mary and Martha right next to it. And that story tells us what it means to love God. Martha was following the rules. She was following the, her duty as a woman in that society. Cook, clean, be hospitable, serve others. But it was Mary who was acting as the outsider in the place of a man who was sitting at Jesus' feet, a position reserved for men traditionally, that showed us what it meant to love God. And I love that it, it has the phrase, sit and listen. And so we're paired with love Your neighbor, go and do. Love God, sit and listen. Go and do, sit and listen. Man, to me that shows the beauty of scriptures. It's one reason why I love the gospel of Luke. It's my favorite. And yet, every time I read this, the story of Mary and Martha I get a little bit angry. (laughs) I am 100% a Martha. There is no amount of Mary in me. I am always focused on the tasks, the preparations. There is always stuff that needs to be done, what needs to be cooked or cleaned or fixed or managed. If you're wondering, I am hashtag Enneagram one, okay? If you know what I mean. And so when I read this passage of the story of Mary and Martha, 
I get angry, but I also get convicted because I can hear Jesus not say, Martha, Martha, but Todd, Todd, you're worried, you're upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. You need to sit and listen. For me to find time to sit and listen with Jesus is challenging. When I'm at home, I've got two young kids, and so they're always running around, and I'm constantly hearing, Dad, look at this. Dad, look at this. Dad, look at this. And I'm like, yep, I'm watching. And when they go to bed, I'm usually cleaning or prepping tomorrow's lunch or doing laundry. There are always tasks. It's hard to find time to sit and listen to Jesus. And when I'm at church, it's even worse sometimes. I'm a sociologist of religion. My training is to sit in the back of the church (laughs) and take notes. So I'm constantly analyzing how many people are here, what types of people are here, what are they doing ritually, what's going on. And I can't turn it off. My wife actually said to me one time, like, you you can't turn that off, can you? And I'm like, ah, I feel convicted. (laughs) When I was in seminary, I kept asking questions. I was that student who kept asking questions. Well, what are the statistics on this? How many people practice this? Are there racial differences? Are there gender differences? Are there social class differences? And finally, my professor kindly came up to me. He was very kind, and he said, Todd, this is a class on the doctrine of the Trinity. (laughs) There are no statistics here. (laughs) I'm thankful I found my home in sociology. (laughs) But I have to force myself to stop, to listen, to sit with Jesus, to choose what is better, as Jesus said. And so like I said, I'm a sociologist of religion. I study congregations and I study clergy. And recently I conducted a national study with Josh Packard, my co-author, on pastors who didn't want to be pastors anymore. We called it the Stuck Clergy Project. It was part of a larger project called the Duns. So those are people who, when you ask them, where, uh, sorry, what religious tradition are you? And they say, oh, I'm Christian. And you ask another question, well, then where do you go to church? And they say, I'm done with that. So it's different from the nuns, those who have no religious tradition. The Duns, they still say they're Jesus followers, but they don't go to a congregation. In fact, they've sort of actively turned away from it. And as we were studying the Duns, pastors kept coming up to us. They would sort of, after a conference or a talk, they'd come and sort of sidle next to us and say, in a whispering voice, I think I'm done too, but I can't tell anyone. I'm a pastor. We didn't know what to do with that. They didn't fit in our study. We're We're studying people in the pews. Pastors were coming up to us. And so we decided to start interviewing them. Let's talk to them. And so we created this project called Stuck. And our initial guesses, our hypotheses, was that this was about losing faith or it was about burnout. Our guess was maybe this was about psychological burnout. These were, they were just done. They were ground down. They were worn out. They weren't passionate anymore. Or that they had lost faith and they didn't believe anymore. That's actually not what we found. 
these pastors we spoke to were passionate. They were called. They hadn't lost faith. faith. They weren't burnt out. But what we did find connected to Martha, it was about the preparations. It was about the tasks. These pastors wanted out of leaving or leading their organization, the congregation, and they wanted out of leading worship because they were not able to sit and listen with Jesus while they were managing an organization. There were too many preparations to be made for them to adequately sit and listen. So this morning with a group of pastors, I shared that there are three gigantic social forces out there affecting pastors right now. And we can't control them, but we are absolutely affected by them. The first is what I call social Darwinism, this idea of survival of the fittest. And here I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about congregations. If a congregation um, can't attract members, and along with members' money, they have to shut down. It might take a while, but they have to shut down. So congregations have to be competitive. They have to offer engaging sermons and amazing music and deep community. And if they don't, over a while, they're going to slowly die. And the second huge social force is capitalism. Now, don't hear me say I'm anti-capitalist. I'm not. Um, my students will walk away from my lectures like, oh, Dr. Ferguson's anti-capitalism. Just because I bring it up, I'm not anti-capitalism. Um, but we live in a world where profit is the goal. Growth is the goal. And so we often use that as a measure of success for our churches. How many people do you have? What's your budget? How much are you giving to missions? And one way we can see the impact of capitalism is that churches copy business practices, but businesses do not copy church practices. So we have to ask ourselves, so in sociology, the thing that you're copying, that means that's the most legitimate thing. So in our society, businesses are more legitimate, the model, than churches. So we, we push pastors to be more like CEOs, but we don't push CEOs to be more pastor-like. We have executive pastors, we have minister of administration, but businesses don't have chief spiritual officer. And so capitalist businesses are the model. And so these forces, social Darwinism and capitalism, they are nothing new. Since our country was founded, we didn't have a state church. So churches were on their own to compete, to grow. That's nothing new. But what is new is when you take those two rules and you add secularization to it, the third social force. Secularization is this idea that there are just fewer people who are Christian, fewer people who are religious, who are attending, and it's generational. Every new generation is less religious than the generation before it. And so now the rules of the game for pastors have changed. The rules are now, hey, you've got to lead in a context where you've got to compete or you're going to die, social Darwinism. 
but you have an increasingly small number of people. Secularization. But here's the stickler. The measure of success is still growth. So these three rules, these three social forces have led to an environment where some pastors feel stuck. They're leading a congregation, but they don't want to They don't want to do it anymore. And so I want to share two main reasons why. One is because they became a business manager and not a spiritual leader. When they graduated seminary, they got their own church, um, and they realized that they were leading a business. And that's not what they were called to do. They were called to lead people to Jesus. And then secondly, they didn't feel like they could be authentically Uh, They couldn't be authentic spiritual leaders. They felt like they had to be fake or hide something, not uh, not share everything. So this first one, this idea that they felt like they were leading a business, churches absolutely are organizations. And here I'm not talking about the church universal, the spiritual entity of all people called by Christ. I'm talking about brick and mortar churches, local churches. They are organizations. They have to have members and money to operate. The pastors kept saying, this is getting in the way of me being a spiritual leader. I'll give you an example. Anthony, these are all pseudonyms, um, so they're not real names. Uh, He's a 64-year-old Methodist pastor. He's one year away from retirement, and he is ready for retirement. Um, He told us he was tired, he was frustrated, but he explicitly told us, I'm not burnt out. He was really emphatic with that. And he said his frustration was that the church was too focused on business and not enough on Jesus. He told us, quote, I feel that the work I'm doing as a local pastor is much more like being a manager of a small franchise than it is a deeply religious movement toward God. So he talks about how his denominational leaders want to move pastors from a pastor-counselor model, a pastor-guide model, to a pastor-as-MBA model. And in fact, some of the bishops are sending, instead of going to seminary, they're saying, go to business school. And so his bishop has given him markers of success, like, hey, if you want to be successful, here are the markers. How many people attend worship? How many people are involved in small groups? And how much money was given to missions? And he told us, he said, While I've always kept my fingers on those markers, those have been secondary to our primary purpose, which is to help people experience God. And so he cannot wait for retirement because for him, it's no longer a spiritual enterprise. It's a franchise. Amanda told us she feels something similarly. She's a 30-something Episcopal priest, And she told us, what I became was somebody who crunched numbers and went to business meetings. I thought I was going to get paid to work with people. I felt like I didn't have the space to do the pastoral work I wanted to do because of the quote-unquote number work that I had to do. And so pastors feel stuck because they wanted to be spiritual leaders, but the demands, the preparations, the tasks from running an organization, got in the way of sitting and listening with Jesus. 
And pastors have to worry about this. They have to balance the budget. They have to make sure that the AC is turned on before worship. They have to make sure that the bulletins have been printed this week without any typos. But they were called to sit and listen to Jesus and help other people do the same. The second way pastors felt stuck was that in the midst of all these preparations, in the midst of running an organization, they didn't feel like they could be authentic. In an environment filled with competition, scarcity, pastors have to produce something to keep people in the pews. And those goals of keeping people in the pews might be opposite the goals of spiritual growth in Christ. Adam, for instance, was a youth pastor at this gigantic non-denominational church. Um, his ministry in the youth department was huge. Every Sunday night, he'd have around 100 teenagers. But he felt dissatisfied. He felt that the most powerful nights were those where there were fewer kids, where they could just, instead of being in the auditorium, grab the chairs, move in a circle, and talk about Christ. And he said his favorite night was when he had 15 kids one night, and um, they were they did the circle thing. They were super involved. They were vulnerable with each other, and they grew spiritually. And he, he came home that night just so excited. He told his wife, this was the best night ever. We only had 15 kids, but who cares? They grew in Christ. But the next day, the Monday morning meetings, pastors know about, the elders called him into the office. And they said, hey, what happened? We saw the numbers from last night. You only had 15 students. What's going on? You need to advertise more. You should market more. This is not acceptable. And he was like, no, 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 no. This is the best night ever. Fifteen kids grew clo closer to Jesus. And so he told us he was frustrated because he wanted to be a spiritual leader, but he was told to be a marketer. And he said, I was acting out of de desperation because I knew I needed to maintain a certain level of production within my ministry. He went on to tell us everything is so manufactured in so many ways. I remember during our summer vacation, we had some people on, or during our summer, we had some people on vacation, and so we pulled chairs out from the auditorium so that it made it look fuller in the service. This idea of changing the surface of things so that it looked better. Peter also struggled with authenticity. He was 62 um, and a pastor at a large evangelical covenant church congregation. His church was thriving. It was bustling on Sunday mornings. And yet he said he was so dissatisfied behind the pulpit every Sunday morning. He felt fake. He said, the services were something we spent the entire week preparing for, sequestered within the building, not engaged with the rest of the world where Jesus wants us to be. We were pinned up. Pinned up inside for what? To make sure that the one hour on Sunday is perfect. And so he went on to describe how the act of leading worship felt fake. 
Every Sunday, because this is a giant mega church, every Sunday he delivered his sermons with lighting and direction cues and a haze machine. And he even had surgical tape on the stage so he could stand from here to here and still be in the spotlight. And so he told us one time um, on a Sunday morning, he wanted to make a teaching point. And there was some, someone in the front row. And so he moved out of the spotlight to directly talk with that person, to make that teaching point. He knew his congregation. And the, the tech team in the back, they were silently going, move back, move back, get in the spotlight. And that's when it clicked for him. He said, I wanted to be an authentic spiritual leader. I wanted to connect with my congregants, but I had to stand in the production spot. It was symbolic of a larger problem for him. He wasn't able to do what felt natural for him. He was called to authentically connect people to Jesus. But his job required him to be a stage performer. And so both Adam and Peter felt like they had to be fake in some ways. They struggled to be a spiritual guide, but they also had to make sure that they were competitive in the spiritual marketplace because if their church didn't attract members and money, it would close. So I tell these stories about pastors who are stuck, um, not because I think every pastor is stuck. Hear me on this. I don't think that this is the norm. In fact, statistics, surveys have shown that when we ask pastors, are you satisfied with your career, the vast majority love it. So hear me, I researched the fringes, the edges. I did not research the norm. So I'm not, I'm not saying that the pastoral pres, uh, profession is horrible, not at all. But I am saying that there are elements that are really big social forces that are affecting how we think about congregational ministry. I want to highlight some issues so we can all learn, whether we're stuck or thriving. And Jesus calls us to sit and listen. He even says this is the one thing that's needed. And pastors are called to help people do this. But they serve in a social environment where they're in charge of the tasks, the preparations. They have to make the church as an organization, not the church universal guided by the Holy Spirit, but the local church as a physical organization. They have to make that function. Is the microphone called on or turned on? Will the guitar player come at the right beat in the right key like we practiced? Did we collect enough money to meet budget? Where did the stain in the carpet come from in the first pew? Is that grape juice? Pastors have to worry about those things. The preparations. And they can get in the way. And so what do we do? What do we do about this? Because we can't change those social forces. Social Darwinism, capitalism, secularization. We can't change that. But we can look to Jesus' own life. He taught the crowds, but then he had to find retreat. He had to find rest, renewal. He had to get away. So pastors, too, have got to find places where they can worship 
sit and listen without producing anything. Where they have to go be with Christ in community without having to worry about the bulletins or the AC or the microphones. They have to worship without production. And this will probably be outside of their own congregation. So it could be a monthly gathering with fellow pastors. It could be a retreat that's seasonal but regular. It has to be something that they didn't plan. And as theological students, some of you already feel this tension. You're engaged in deep theological learning about God, about Scripture. And hear me on this. It is vital to have highly trained, theologically educated leaders. This is a good task you are doing. It is so important we understand the concept of homoousius and why that's important for our understanding of Jesus. It's important that you can translate your Greek and Hebrew. This is good for the sake of the church. But learning about God and sitting and listening with Christ, it's not the same thing. Writing an exegesis paper, really good practice, really good thing to do. But it's also not the same thing as reading scripture in community, guided by the Holy Spirit for your relationship with Christ. And some of y'all feel the tension. There's so many tasks to do, so many papers, so many Greek verbs you have to learn, and so many are irregular. And yet, please don't replace that with sitting and listening. And I'm, so I'm, I'm so thankful when I see the model here at Truett with spiritual formation groups and chapel. My divinity school maybe didn't do a great job at that. And so I see the model here, and I'm thankful that y'all have places regularly to talk with each other that might not be about class or academics, but maybe it's about sitting and listening with Christ. And so when you graduate, when you lead your own ministry, whatever that looks like, whether it's a congregation or it's a ministry or some other work, you've got to find time to carve out space to be able to worship in community without production, without worrying about the tasks. And when we get off track, as I have many times, may we hear Jesus' kind words to us, Martha, Martha. Only one thing is needed. Let's pray. Holy and good God, we are thankful for your graciousness while we learn what it means to sit and listen to Jesus. God, thank you for the beautiful words in Scripture that continually call us back to yourself. Help us to understand that the right priorities are to be able to focus on you and not on the preparations. Help us keep this priority in the, in the name of Christ, we pray.
who lives and reigns with you, one God, now and forever. Amen.